Hey everyone, this is Leon from Fiasco and Slow Burn. On today's episode of 5 to 4, Peter, Rhiannon, and Michael are talking about voting rights and voter suppression. It has been two months since President Trump installed a loyal supporter as Postmaster General. The Trump campaign is suing Montana's Democratic governor to try to stop expanded mail-in voting in the state. And they're suing Nevada now for expanding this mail-in voting in the middle of a public health crisis. It all goes back to the Constitution, which, believe it or not, does not provide an individual right to vote, something the modern court pointed out in Bush v. Gore, despite voter protections in the 14th and 15th Amendments. This is 5 to 4, a podcast about how much the Supreme Court sucks. Welcome to 5 to 4, where we dissect and analyze the Supreme Court cases that have toyed with American freedoms like a cat batting around a half-dead bird. <laughs> I am Peter. I'm here with Michael. Hey, everybody. And Rhiannon. Hi. And today we are doing a special episode on voting rights in the United States. In recent months, there have been a lot of get-out-the-vote efforts, and a lot of people have expressed the desire to vote by mail due to COVID. And in a fairly interesting development, the president, Donald Trump, has said, no, uh, you can't do that. <laughs> Don't even think And people it. said, well, we, you know, we want to vote. Like, isn't this a democracy? And he said, no, absolutely not. And he seems to maybe have ordered the Postal Service to, like, start throwing out mailboxes and shit. And so you may have borne witness to all of this and various other voter suppression efforts and asked, how can he do that? Isn't there a right to vote? Isn't that part of the Constitution? And the answer to that is sort of. The reality is that the Constitution doesn't expressly provide for an individual's right to vote. And because of that, the right to vote in this country is incredibly fragile. And the Supreme Court has never taken the steps required to solidify it into something that could withstand attack. Yeah. As yeah. a result, the last several decades have seen a steady increase in voter suppression efforts from voter ID laws to gerrymandering to these newer efforts to attack mail-in voting. And the court has been a major factor in the success of those efforts. So to contextualize why this can happen in a country that your elementary school teacher told you was a democracy, we want to <laughs> walk you through what the Constitution actually says about voting, talk a little bit about the history of voting rights, and discuss the Supreme Court's failure to find a meaningful and reasonable interpretation of the Constitution that would actually protect those rights. Right. Yes. And to really understand this, you need to start with the Constitution. So I think we should go to the only one of us who's ever read it, Michael. <laughs> okay, so let me take you back to 1789, uh, when a bunch of white male, you know, professional managerial class types got together and wrote the United States Constitution. Yeah, yeah. our fanciest boys all got together. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, exactly. You know, I was looking, sorry, this is an aside, but I was looking through some old cocktail notes because I like making drinks and like Benjamin Franklin in his writings, he has like cocktail recipes that like people asked him about. So he was like doing craft cocktails back before like the phrase cocktail had even been invented. They are like so very much like modern day yuppies. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, so the Constitution kicks off with uh, the phrase we the people, which mm -hmm. in retrospect meant like the specific people in that room. Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's yeah. us guys. That's what they really right. meant. It's just us boys. The fellas <laughs> here. We got some things to say. 
And yeah, like obviously the Declaration of Independence had like a lot of nice language, but the founding fathers did not really trust the general public with any significant power. Right. And so all the original Constitution says about elections is that, you know, voting requirements for congressional elections are determined by the states. And for presidential elections, each state appoints its own electors who vote for the president, which, you know, we call the Electoral College. Nowadays, those electors are pretty much symbolic because the states pretty much all require that their electors vote for whoever wins the vote in their state. But that's not actually required by the Constitution. Right. And that's it. There's no explicit right to vote in the Constitution as it was originally written. And that's not that surprising if you look at like what elections were like back then. There were almost no direct elections for federal office. The voters could choose the House of Representatives like we can now and their state legislatures. But the state Mm -hmm. legislators chose the Senate, not the voters. Mm -hmm. Uh, The Electoral College chose the president, not the voters. And the president and Senate chose the Supreme Court. It's like the vast majority of the federal government was chosen indirectly by elites. And here we're talking about voters, but the voters were just white male landowners at that. So most people couldn't even vote. And those who could vote had very little and only indirect influence on the makeup of the federal government. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's right. And so that's sort of the lay of the land on uh, voting as the Constitution is originally written. But things change a bit after the Civil War. So Mm -hmm. the federal government is aiming to keep the South from reestablishing slavery after the Civil War ends. And the Civil War amendments, the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments to the Constitution are passed in the late 1860s through 1870. So um, the Civil War amendments also known as the Reconstruction Amendments. We've talked about them before, but after the 13th Amendment constitutionally abolished slavery, the debate over ratification of the 14th and 15th Amendments was really bitterly divisive. You know, like back in middle school and high school, like we're taught about these amendments as a group, but it's important to look at them as sort of like building on one another. They're not like a three amendment package deal. Right. And I think it's also important to highlight that these really significant massive upheavals in the legal foundation of this country were not the result of just like the good guys winning the war and they're nicer so they know the good laws to do right Right. it was the result of intense targeted political pressure of seeing how the south reacts of thinking and debating really hard and pressuring bad actors to like reform a better union right Right. so Mm -hmm. the 13th amendment abolished slavery but then the republicans remember this is the party of lincoln Mm -hmm. the republicans had an immediate problem on their hands because of the 13th amendment the full population of freed slaves in the South would now be counted for determining the number of congressional representatives that the South got. But even though those freed slaves counted towards Southern states' congressional representation, the South was determined not to let them vote. So because freed slaves would likely be voting Republican and because Republicans didn't want to just hand over a huge advantage in congressional control to Democrats, Republicans had to think of a way to encourage and ensure that black people in the South were going to be able to vote. And they had to do so without having to rely on like just temporary political majorities in Congress. They weren't always going to be a Republican majority. And so they had to plan for that. So they pushed for a constitutional amendment. And once the 14th Amendment was drawn up and sent to the states for ratification, of course, the Mm -hmm. southern states refused to ratify. 
And so uh, what did Congress do? Congress was like, how does a little military government sound? <laughs> um, and uh, Congress passed the Reconstruction Acts, which literally imposed federal military government in place of state governments in the South. And it required that the southern states ratify the 14th Amendment in order to lift that military control and in order to fully reenter the Union. That's how the 14th Amendment gets passed. I, I got to give them props. Yeah. There's some constitutional amendments that I think could use that sort of political pressure these days. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. Right. Like right. the can, I can come up with like four <laughs> in my head that I could write like tonight that would yeah. be worthy of that treatment. Yeah. <laughs> so the 14th Amendment is the first part of the Constitution to mention the right to vote. And what it does is it says that states that deny or abridge the right to vote with a couple of exceptions, will be penalized with a corresponding loss of congressional representation. Right. Mm -hmm. So this is the first part of the Constitution that seems to indicate that citizens have some sort of actual voting right. And the 14th Amendment also has the Equal Protection Clause, which we've covered a bunch on this podcast, which says that citizens must be given equal protection under the law and is later used by courts to ensure that people's votes count equally. Yeah. But at the time the 14th Amendment is passed, not everyone thought actually that it was going to really adequately ensure the right to vote. The radical Republicans in particular, they're worried that the 14th Amendment is sort of by itself insufficient for forcing the South to recognize the political rights of freed slaves. So that's why we then follow up with the 15th Amendment. And uh, the 15th Amendment, again, references a right to vote, saying that the right of citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of race, color, or previous condition of servitude. Right. So, you know, all of a sudden you have these two amendments that don't seem to be themselves creating an individual right to vote, but nonetheless are referencing and protecting the right to vote. And frankly, right. I think the only reasonable way to interpret these amendments is as if they create a de facto right to vote for citizens in this country. Right. The 14th right. Amendment says that states that deny or abridge the right to vote will lose congressional representation and that citizens must be guaranteed equal protection of the laws. The 15th Amendment says you can't discriminate on the basis of race and voting. If those don't functionally create a right to vote, then I don't really know what they do. Right. Exactly. Right. Exactly. But despite what we think is pretty clear language there, the courts over the following like 100 years never really seized on the 14th Amendment as the basis of a right to vote. So while courts did occasionally prevent states from discriminating in voting on the basis of race, other sorts of arbitrary denial of the right to vote are totally fair game. Right. So Southern governments reacted to the 14th and 15th Amendments with new and creative laws designed purposely to disenfranchise black voters. Right. Right. You know, tons of examples like complicated voter registration requirements, you know, really uh, burdensome residency requirements to qualify as a voter. Southern governments implemented, of course, literacy tests. These were always administered by white voter registration officials and they're mm -hmm. administered subjectively. Mm -hmm. uh, there were poll taxes and a lot of Southern governments also did what are called white primaries, where the state's would hold primary races, but only allow white people to vote in them. Right. Which, by the way, is legal or was legal at the time, in large right. part because 
primaries are just governed under a different set of rules because they're run mm-hmm. by the parties themselves. Uh, exactly. So there was this argument that this isn't actually discriminatory in a way that is covered by the Constitution. Right, right. right. Now, to remedy all of this, uh, like in 1890, for example, President Benjamin Harrison endorsed the Lodge Bill, uh, which was proposed by Republicans in Congress. And the bill would have allowed for federal regulation of congressional elections, but it failed. So in the absence of, you know, strong federal legislation in the absence of any sort of federal legislative remedy, lawsuits pop up and the Supreme Court is asked to weigh in on the efforts of Southern governments to disenfranchise black voters in all of these ways. And so the Supreme Court struck some of those efforts down. Mm -hmm. In 1915, for example, the court struck down certain grandfather clauses. Um, Those are laws that waived the requirement of a literacy test or a poll tax if your grandfather had been allowed to vote meaning the descendants of slaves were required to fulfill those requirements, but they wouldn't be imposed on whites. So the Supreme Court struck some of those down, but the Supreme Court also upheld all sorts of limitations on voting rights. Mm -hmm. In 1903, for example, in a majority opinion written by Oliver Wendell Holmes, the Supreme Court dismissed a case asking that black voters be automatically registered to vote in Alabama the same way white voters were. Poll taxes were held to be constitutional in a 1937 case called Breedlove versus Suttles. Literacy tests were also held to be constitutional by the Supreme Court in 1959. Mm-hmm. So as a result, like the most basic and fundamental methods of voter disenfranchisement, those remained intact because the Supreme Court said they were OK. Right. And uh, it's worth noting that we're very focused right now and, and I think throughout this episode on race. And there's like a lot of obvious reasons why, but it's worth noting also that like women didn't get the right to vote till like 1920. Exactly. And that wasn't as a result of a Supreme Court case. That was a popular social movement leading to amending the Constitution. That's right. 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 So it was only in the 1960s when both Congress and the Supreme Court under Chief Justice Earl Warren started more actively protecting voting rights. The 24th Amendment passes in 1964, and it bans literacy tests. In 1965, the Voting Rights Act is passed, further protecting the minority vote. At the same time, the court is handing down seminal decisions protecting voting rights using the 14th Amendment to apply a principle of one man, one vote, Mm -hmm. um, saying that the Equal Protection Clause mandates that each vote be treated equally. Right. So in 1966, the court strikes down certain racist redistricting practices. They strike down poll taxes the same year. So in general, there appeared to be an appetite on the court to use the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment to see the vote protected with a focus on protecting minorities from the disenfranchisement that they'd been subject to since Reconstruction began, really. Yeah. Right. But, you know, as we've noted many times in the course of doing this podcast, uh, the court after the Warren era, the last 40 years or 50 years, really, Mm -hmm. was and is deeply reactionary. And that's not a fluke. It's like deeply embedded in the conservative judicial bench. Just for a couple of Examples, we've talked about what an all-time piece of shit Bill Rehnquist was. Mm -hmm. But something I don't think we've mentioned before is that in the early 60s, he almost certainly personally engaged in a campaign of voter intimidation and harassment aimed at black people in Phoenix. Four witnesses testified under oath in front of Congress about seeing him do this. And uh, he denied it under oath, probably perjuring himself. Love that. This was a guy who, as a reminder, was the chief justice of the Supreme Court just 15 years ago. 
Um, Another all-time piece of shit we've mentioned before is Robert Bork, who was nominated (laughs) to the Supreme Court in the late (laughs) 80s, but ultimately didn't get 50 votes. And his loss is still like, makes him a martyr for conservatives. Right. Yeah. Some things about him is he thought poll taxes and literacy tests were constitutional, but that the Voting Rights Act was not constitutional. (laughs) So these are the intellectual leaders in conservative legal circles. Yeah. So it's not a surprise that the court spent the last few decades punching holes in the right to vote. In 1980, for example, the court upheld at-large elections in Mobile, Alabama, despite evidence that they disenfranchised black voters. Uh, Generally speaking, uh, what the court starts to do is focus a little less on the rights of voters and a little more on the rights of states to administer their own elections, which gives them a lot of leeway. Yeah, it's like it it becomes a state's rights thing. Yeah. Yeah. And so you have that sort of change after the Warren court where the court starts shifting the other direction. But what really changes the way that the law and voting rights intersect is Bush v. Gore, the subject of our first episode. What changed Mm -hmm. after Bush v. Gore was less about the law and more about how political institutions began to view the courts and the law as a weapon to help them win elections. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think the lesson for the GOP was that the scale of what you can achieve through the courts is infinite. Yeah. If you can yeah. use the Supreme Court to essentially right. steal a presidential election while everyone is watching, mm-hmm. then you can use it for anything. Exactly. Yeah. And there's, you know, there's a really telling line from Bush v. Gore, um, which is the court's pronouncement that, quote, the individual citizen has no federal constitutional right to vote for electors for president of the United States. Yeah. So, like, yeah, that's true in the most literal sense. But the reality is that just about everything you need to protect the right to vote is right there in the 14th Amendment, like right, we right. said. Uh, the 14th Amendment, you know, first of all, penalizes states that deny or abridge the right to vote. And secondly, it guarantees citizens the equal protection of the law. So, yeah, states don't have to let their citizens vote. But in a world where every state does, the 14th Amendment is right there to be used to make sure that the states do that fairly. Right. And conservatives don't want to recognize this like obvious truth for the very simple reason that they won't hold political power if that truth is like actualized in the world. You know, just 10 years ago. The big narrative was that Republicans would have to court non-white voters if they wanted to compete with Democrats <laughs> politically. Uh, yeah. Hispanic and other non-white populations were growing and the right would have to speak to their interests. I was rereading this stuff in prep for this episode, and there were like multiple political science papers in 2008 and 2009 discussing what they called uh, the permanent Democratic majority. Which is just fucking wild to think about. In yeah. Respect. In 2020, that's yeah, just uh, that seems so far away. Good call, John Judas. You, you nailed <laughs> it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> th- so th- what they said was like the combination of minority populations growing as a share of the electorate, uh, shifts in educated white voter behavior and uh, the migration of left leaning voters into like sunbelt cities. Right. We're all supposed to lock in decades of progressive dominance. And and you can kind of see this dynamic now with like Georgia and Arizona and Texas becoming sort of battlegrounds. It's like what they were talking about. But like the idea that the only chance Republicans had to blunt this would be to make inroads with minorities just turned out to be totally false. Right. Right. Because Republicans saw another path, which is just making sure that their white voter base, their votes counted for more. And that's nothing new, right? Like, 
Irish immigration in the 1850s led to the xenophobic Know Nothing Party. Mm-hmm. Chinese immigration in the 1880s led to, among other things, the Chinese Exclusion Act, which we've talked about uh, on this pod before. Yeah. The Civil War and Southern Reconstruction led to uh, you know, the Southern Redemption and Jim Crow, which included campaigns of racial violence and all the disenfranchisement stuff we've been talking about. Right. And in the modern day, large scale demographic shifts in the last 40 years has led to the Republicans' current sustained project of voter suppression. It's precisely like those things in every possible jurisdiction at every level of government. They're exactly. trying to prevent minorities from voting. Voter roll purges gerrymandering, voter ID laws, attacks on the Voting Rights Act, the elimination of polling places, curtailing or eliminating early voting, delaying or even canceling elections, impediments to mail-in voting. These strategies are crucial to the continued power of the Republican Party, and they are possible only because the Supreme Court has refused to recognize a strong right to vote in the Constitution. Right. Exactly. The court isn't a passive observer here. John Roberts and Sam Alito and all them are not just like watching history unfold. It's central to this strategy. And we've told you a lot about that in this podcast and Bush v. Gore, when we talked about Citizens United, about campaign finance, Shelby County, which was about the Voting Rights Act, RNC v. DNC, which is about absentee voting deadlines in the primaries during COVID this year, our term wrap up when we discussed how they've effectively disenfranchised 800,000 Floridians for this presidential election. Right. And there are more cases to come. That's just yeah. the start. Yeah. So, they're coming. <laughs> yeah. yeah. We got more for you. Pipeline. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. We're going to have some great episodes this fall. <laughs> That's for sure. And, you know, we, we should note that voter suppression isn't like a phenomenon that appears sporadically here and there. It is a centrally planned strategy that is developed by Republican operatives and disseminated throughout the ranks of the Republican Party for execution. Mm -hmm. Trump's Justice Department has systematically targeted non-existent voter fraud in order to suppress the vote. Like a a few years ago, they hired Hans von Spakovsky, some Heritage Foundation freak and longtime Republican operative who has been a proponent of election reform, uh, which is a term (laughs) that when used by Republicans usually means like the elimination of elections. <laughs> That's right. Right. Yeah, yeah. That's right. Hans von Spakovsky, you know those villains in movies who have like a facial deformity and it's like central to their character? <laughs> yes, right. absolutely. And like, you know, halfway through the movie, he tells you how it happened. And you're like, oh, right. man, this guy. Right. This guy has <laughs> yeah. motivation to be bad. Yeah. yeah. Right. The screenwriters wanted him to look as ugly on the outside as he is on the inside. <laughs> right. <That's> like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. This is absolutely right. Like uh, this guy, Hans, looks like a kindergartner, like drawing a villain monster. And then you just like poke two holes for eyes and you draw one straight line for upper lip. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> so this guy, Spakowski, he, he's a longtime Republican official who has been at the forefront of efforts by Republicans to perpetuate the myth of widespread voter fraud in order to implement voter suppression techniques. And he is like, without question, an extremist. Right. He is literally building a career out of a lie, the lie that there is widespread voter mm-hmm. fraud, right. almost certainly knowingly, at least to some degree. Yeah. And in a normal world would be relegated to some garbage think tank, right? Right. 
But for several years, he has been working in the Trump administration on Trump's Advisory Commission on Election Integrity, uh, which is the functional heart of the administration's voter suppression efforts. And again, these are people who have been around Republican circles, Mm -hmm. but have never had this level of power, have never been given this much responsibility. And this guy has a huge amount of influence flowing through him right now. Um, And he's a fucking nut job. Yeah. Right. Chris Kobach is another one of those nut jobs. Yep. Like cretins like this, they don't exist and they don't work without a cooperative Supreme Court. And we should clarify what Mm -hmm. their exact role is here. Almost all of these large scale voter suppression efforts touch on the same issue, which we've hinted at a bit, weighing the right of citizens to vote against the rights of states to control their own elections. And what conservatives Mm -hmm. have done and what the Roberts Court in particular has done is shift the balance towards states' rights and away from individual voters' rights. Mm -hmm. In all of the cases that Michael mentioned, from the voter ID cases to Voting Rights Act cases like Shelby County to gerrymandering cases and COVID-related election cases, the court has taken the general position that under the Constitution, states have freedom to run their elections as they deem fit, even if that means that they do like a little bit of disenfranchisement here and there. (laughs) Right, right, (laughs) yes. The GOP cannot do this without the Supreme Court. They've won the popular vote in presidential elections once in the last 30 years. Their voter base consists increasingly of older, white, non-college educated males. That's a demographic that's shrinking. Meanwhile, Democratic-leaning voter bases like Hispanics are growing substantially. Right. The GOP's electoral disadvantage is huge. And so it needs laws and procedures that disenfranchise people like en masse. Exactly. And those are likely to get challenged in court and make their way up to the Supreme Court. If the Supreme Court were not playing ball, there wouldn't be any realistic pathway to this sort of large scale voter suppression. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. And the Supreme Court, you know, the nine justices up there, they're not only sort of playing ball and the conservative justices are helping with this voter suppression tactic politically. It's also, I think, you know, we've talked about on the pod how... There is no, you know, objective administration of the law. So that Mm -hmm. comes into play when the Supreme Court justices are interpreting disenfranchisement efforts today. The nine justices are well-educated, rich, Mm -hmm. mostly white folks who frankly can't relate to the people who are being targeted by voter suppression efforts. It's hard for somebody like uh, Gorsuch to imagine the difficulty of getting, say, a valid ID when he's never had to do that. Or uh, the difficulty of planning a bus route during the workday to get Mm -hmm. to a polling location that's Mm -hmm. far away because there are only a few now left in your precinct. I think it's very easy for them to brush off these disenfranchisement efforts as um, something that probably only affects you know, people who like they don't think about much. Right. And, um, you know, it's just a nominal effect on on a small percentage. Right. When your fucking secretary handles your voter registration. Exactly. How can you relate to someone who doesn't even right. have an ID? Right. You're right. so yeah. far. You're so distant right. from them. Exactly. Right. They don't have a hyphenated last name where the presence or absence of the hyphen could lead to a challenge for their provisional ballot that they have <laughs> right. to cast because they've moved 
three times in the right. last four years and exactly. aren't at the same polling location as they used to be. Yeah. Right? Yep. Like, and, you know, I, I do want to make a quick point as we talk about this. We're not going to talk about the fact that, like, fucking elections are on a Tuesday and, yeah. mm-hmm. like, it's just one day, right? You can easily envision a world where voting is a week-long process or at least yeah. on a mm-hmm. day when fewer people are working. Right. And that's not, like, a function of the Supreme Court, really. But it is a function of, like, reactionary institutions who have no interest in trying to figure out the best way to turn this country into something that looks like an actual democracy. Exactly. Right. Right. I'm just looking at Wikipedia, and this says that Sundays internationally is the most common day for elections. I love that it's fucking Tuesday here. Like, is there a worse day? Is there a day where you, like, more (laughs) obviously have to be at work than a Tuesday? Right, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, like every fucking normal country has a national holiday for voting. With us, it's like, good luck, bro. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Elections in India and the Czech Republic are held over multiple days. That's what I'm fucking talking about, dude. It should be a year long. <laughs> sure. Okay, guys. One sec. Let's go to an ad. This episode of 5 to 4 is brought to you by Raycon Earbuds. At this point, everyone needs a good pair of wireless earbuds. But you don't have to get the most expensive ones. I've been using my Raycons to listen to music off my phone, and they sound fantastic. I've always loved the song My Church by Marin Morris, and I knew it had a soaring chorus, but I did not realize how high it soars until I listened to it with my Raycons. The part at the end where the guitars fall out and it's just her singing over drums, the Raycons make it sound like she is in the room with you. Raycons' newest model, the Everyday E25 earbuds, are their best ones yet, with six hours of playtime, seamless Bluetooth pairing, more bass, and a more compact design that gives you a nice, noise-isolating fit. The company was co-founded by Ray J, and celebrities like Brandy, Mike Tyson, and Rich the Kid are all obsessed with it. Now is the time to get the latest and greatest from Raycon. Get 15% off your order at buyraycon.com slash 54, 54 all spelled out. That's buyraycon.com slash 54 for 15% off Raycon wireless earbuds. Buyraycon.com slash 54. So, you know, before we move on, I want to make a quick point. Given that the Supreme Court has literally held that there is no constitutional right to vote for the president, is there anything more brazen than the propaganda this country feeds itself about, like, our democracy? When you're a kid, you don't learn that we are a democracy, right? You learn that we are the democracy, like the (laughs) freest, most democratic (laughs) country on earth eagles in the classroom right <laughs> I, I had a bunch of classrooms that just had like just had an eagle like in the in the corner right did you guys grow up saying the pledge of allegiance yeah. every day yeah of course oh yeah, yeah. pledge yeah. of allegiance every day we also have um the texas pledge of allegiance down wow. here i would like to hear more about that <laughs> yeah what do you say um honor the texas flag i pledge allegiance to the texas one and indivisible that's wow. it yeah. <laughs> Barely a sentence. That's exactly what I expect out of the the Texas pledge. All of this for a country where there's no fucking right to vote. Right, 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 exactly. And, you know, it it goes deeper than just like that sort of soft cultural propaganda. Citizenship tests for immigrants applying to be citizens used to include the question, what's the most important right for American citizens? And the answer was the right to vote. 
Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. on top of the fact that our citizenship test apparently includes like opinion questions, <laughs> yeah. answers a right that we don't even have. Literally just yeah. like ensuring that anyone who wants to become a citizen has to like consume and digest and spit out the same brazen propaganda that all of our yeah. like elementary school children do too. Right. Right. And this is also like sort of reflected in our foreign policy, right? Like following World War II. When we imposed a constitution on Japan, that required universal suffrage mm-hmm. for adults. Uh, we mm-hmm. did the same thing in Germany. When we overthrew the governments of Afghanistan and Iraq, we insisted that they include a right to vote in their new constitutions. <laughs> oh. This country is so steeped in its own bullshit, so far up its own ass, <laughs> yeah. that we are insisting these countries give their citizens rights. That our citizens don't even have. And I just want to note as an aside, (laughs) other things that we're told that are great about our country, like all the veto points and separations of power and bicameralism and all that shit. We don't do that either. (laughs) So we should talk about the election crisis to come. Mm -hmm. We all know we're (laughs) heading for one. One that's on the calendar already. (laughs) It's clear that the Republican Party is gearing up for a two-phase attack on the elections this November. Mm -hmm. The first phase is what we mentioned. You have these active efforts to suppress the vote, suppress turnout. But the second phase is challenging election results, very likely by contesting the validity of ballots It'll likely be done Mm -hmm. in multiple states or as many states as is needed. And if the election looks like it will hinge on it, it'll end up before the Supreme Court. Trump v. Biden. God help us. God. And like, (laughs) oh, thank you. The sound of that just puts me on edge, man. Um, And, you know, like we're not going to speculate on what exactly a Trump v. Biden case will look like. But definitely we can already tell you what the considerations are likely to be. And it's Mm going to likely be weighing the Constitution's protections of the right to vote against the rights of the states to control their own elections, just like they've been weighing, you know, since the 14th Amendment was passed. Um, And one way or another, where the court falls on that, will be dictated more by politics than the law, Mm -hmm. just like it always has been. Right. And this battle is like it's already underway. So obviously there's a big difference between the parties right now where like substantial majorities of Democrats want to vote absentee, whereas substantial majorities of Republicans want to vote on election day in person. Uh, And this creates like a very clear avenue for the Republicans to engage in voter suppression that largely hits Democrats without having to specifically target their approach, right? Right. They just go after vote by mail. And so like an example of this currently being underway is in Iowa, where if you want to request an absentee ballot, you need to have your voter ID number, which nobody knows. And it's a common problem is that the forms get turned in without this. And so a bunch of clerks were like, well, we're going to send people pre-filled out forms. So all they have to do is sign it and return it. And so, of course, Republicans in the state legislators passed a law saying you can't do that. And then a bunch of clerks were like, well, fuck that. We're doing it anyway. And they did. And then the Trump campaign challenged that in court. And uh, this just happened where 50,000 absentee ballot requests got thrown out because of this. And there are like another 20,000 in contention in other uh, counties. So the war on absentee voting is underway right now. It's not just the Postal Service. It's in the courts. It's in the state houses right now. Yeah. And can I just add, you know, an example in Texas, Harris County, 
massive, massive district where Houston is, right? Tons Mm -hmm. of voters. The Secretary of State's office just threatened this week, threatened legal action against Harris County if it goes ahead with its plan to send applications for mail-in ballots to more than 2 million registered voters. So this is already happening, Harris County. Not only huge, urban, but very diverse. uh, Do it anyway. (laughs) Yeah, do it! (laughs) The Trump administration has also sued both Nevada and Montana because those states automatically sent voters mail-in ballots. Uh, And the administration is claiming that sending voters those ballots undermines election integrity. (laughs) This is the federal government stepping in to interfere with states trying to increase their own turnout, which should dispose of any notion you might have that what conservatives are actually concerned with is the state's rights to run their own elections. Exactly. Right. So, So one thing I'll say that's like a positive development is the NBA work stoppage, right, the Bucks right. Wildcat strike that turned into like something a little broader very briefly. Yeah. One policy change that came out of that was the uh, use of arenas as polling locations. And maybe some of our listeners who are a little more skeptical of, you know, electoralism as a means of social change won't really care. But as we're talking about voting rights, it's worth noting that's a big win. Yeah. Because yeah. all of these are in urban areas that, yes. you know, have a lot of minority voters who are often the targets of disenfranchising efforts, right? Poll closures, you know, attacks on absentee voting and challenges to signatures and all that shit. And so having, you know, a large, easily accessed polling location is a big win. Right. Yeah. And not just that, but my understanding is that the plan also includes using some of those facilities for voter registration and ballot receiving boards, like especially mm-hmm. if the deadline to establish a polling place has already passed. Right. Again, that's really needed and can have a really big impact. Yeah. Yeah. So one final point I want to make about these elections, 2020, is that the Democrat strategy is to get as many votes as possible and get them counted, right? Yes. The GOP will be trying to get as many of those votes tossed out after the fact as possible. Right. Mm -hmm. But a lot of the things the GOP does to suppress the vote can't really be challenged after the fact. Let's say Trump engages in what I think is the nightmare scenario and creates a police presence at the polls that is designed to discourage votes. Biden can argue that it's illegal, but what could a court even do? Right. You can try to get an emergency injunction to stop it at the time, which would take hours, hours in which people are being turned away from the polls. Right. Biden can't prove it would have changed the outcome after the fact. Right. And no one will be able to measure the exact number of votes lost. When a strategy is designed to prevent people from voting, it's almost impossible to challenge in the courts after the election actually occurs because the damage is already done. Exactly. All that to say the Republicans' path here is easier. It's easier to suppress the vote than it is to fight against it. It's just a massive built-in advantage. And that should be something that's very disconcerting because if the GOP decides to go all out on November 3rd, I'm not entirely sure how much could actually be done to stop it. Yeah, right. yeah. There just isn't a legal framework for this kind of thing. Right. And that's part of the reason why the Republicans have chosen that yeah. strategy, frankly. Yeah. Another know? reason why uh, having multiple election days, you know, an election right. week would yeah. be right. beneficial. Exactly. 
So, you know, to speak a little normatively here, to talk about the future and what a legal framework that adequately protects voting rights might look like, the most obvious step the courts would take in a fair world, in a just world, is to return to the Warren Court era framework of a 14th Amendment. That framework uses the Equal Protection Clause to protect voters, and um, that kind of court would be returning to using an analysis that weighs the rights of voters more heavily than the rights of states to control their elections. Right. Mm-hmm. Another obvious step is to undo the gutting of the Voting Rights Act that took place mm-hmm. in Shelby County v. Holder back in 2013. Mm-hmm. We didn't cover that case much here today, but that's because we have an entire episode on it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and yeah, if I can talk my nerd shit for a second. Please do. <laughs> there's also yes. a less obvious step to be taken. We, we mentioned earlier that there's a clause in the 14th Amendment that penalizes states that deny or abridge their citizens' right to vote. And it penalizes them by lowering their congressional representation proportionately. In other words, Mm -hmm. states are apportioned congressmen based on their population. So if you deny ex-citizens their right to vote, your share of congressional representatives would decrease accordingly. Mm -hmm. And believe it or not, this clause has really never been enforced for a bunch of reasons. It's logistically difficult to implement and... There's a lot of political pressure by you know southern states, frankly, to not enforce it. And as a result, courts have more or less given up on it. And, you know, impact litigation attorneys like at the ACLU, for example, have also more or less given up on it as like a reasonable path here. Right. So in other words, states are running wild with disenfranchisement while there's a massive constitutional weapon for fighting against it that sits dormant and mostly unused. And if you want states to take voting rights seriously, that clause needs to be given teeth and liberal and left judges and academics should be working on doing that. Exactly. So, yeah, look, it's up to judges and academics to do that sort of groundwork. But what really drives change is popular pressure on political institutions. And that's right. I think history shows that. And so, yeah, like the Warren Court had liberal minded justices. But that court was more than anything responsive to the social and political upheaval of the 60s. It's not a coincidence that the court's greatest period of social change over the last century was also a period of great civil unrest um, when, you know, people were out in the streets demanding justice. Yeah. 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 Like we said, it, it wasn't long ago that many Republicans were eyeing a future where they they were courting Hispanic voters, right? But in a post-Trump world, that's not a real option, right? They've fully embraced reactionary white nationalist politics to a point where it doesn't really feel like they can turn back, at least not in the short term. They can no longer realistically think about expanding their coalition. All they can do is ensure that they weaken the political power of their opponents. So, The preservation of the modern GOP relies on the idea of permanent minority rule. And you cannot have permanent minority rule in this country with a constitution that actually protects against the denial or abridgment of voting rights. And the conservatives on the court know and understand this deeply. They were groomed by conservative academia and the Federalist Society and appointed by Republican presidents with this specifically in mind. This isn't like a one-off issue that the conservative justices can be flexible on, right? If they back down on this, the conservative political project in this country will be teetering on collapse. Right. So 
you know, we can explain to you why the right to vote as it is written in the Constitution is a little flimsy, but that doesn't explain why voting rights in this country are weak. As we mentioned, everything you need to protect voting rights is right there in the 14th and 15th Amendments to the Constitution. Right. Right. I think we've said this numerous times. Rights are as strong or as weak as our political institutions allow them to be, and conservative institutions have a vested interest in keeping this one weak. You won't convince them using constitutional arguments to give up their own power. That has never worked in the past, and it won't work now. One way or another, it has to be taken from them, because what the Constitution actually means is determined by powerful people, not by podcasters who read the Constitution. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you know, um, Michael, you mentioned earlier that, like, some people on the left might sort of be just really skeptical of electoralism, of the power of the vote, of whether or not elections really matter. And I fully admit that, like, I think about that stuff, too, right? Especially in a state like Texas, where it's really Mm. easy to just be like, you know, my vote does not fucking matter in this state, in the current system. Or right now with, like, the, you know, protests related to police violence. Yes. You know, I'm tweeting how much I'm angry at Bill de Blasio all the time. Right. It doesn't matter that it's, like, all Democrats running New York City. It's still a massive uphill battle to get them to do right. basic democratically popular reforms. Right. Right. So. right. But what I'm, you know, in prepping for this episode, what I've been thinking a lot about is how it's easy for us on the left to just throw up our hands and say, you know, mm-hmm. elections just don't fucking matter. We will have power through other methods, that kind of thing. And I actually think that that thinking is a result of exactly these voter suppression tactics. Yes, right. That's right. And that's in right. preparing for this episode, I ran across a quote from a senator, a U.S. Senator. He was the former governor of South Carolina, actually. And this was when Southern disenfranchisement efforts were being debated and were being discussed in Congress around the turn of the century. Um, And so in the year 1900, uh, former South Carolina Governor Benjamin Tillman said this about voter disenfranchisement in South Carolina. He said, in my state, there were 135,000 Negro voters or Negroes of voting age and some 90,000 or 95,000 white voters. Now, I want to ask you, with a free vote and a fair count, how are you going to beat 135,000 by 95,000? How are you going to do it? You had set us an impossible task. We did not disenfranchise the Negroes until 1895. Then we had a constitutional convention, which took the matter up calmly, deliberately, and avowedly with the purpose of disenfranchising as many of them as we could underneath the 14th and 15th Amendments. We adopted the educational qualification as the only means left to us, and the Negro is as contented and as prosperous and as well-protected in South Carolina today as in any state of the Union south of the Potomac. He is not meddling with politics, for he found <laughs> high bar there. <laughs> <laughs> he is not meddling with politics, for he found that the more he meddled with them, the worse off he got. As to his rights, I will not discuss them now. We of the South have never recognized the right of the Negro to govern white men, and we never will. I would to God the last one of them was in Africa, and that none of them had ever been brought to our shores. This is 1900. Yeah, but Tom Cotton said the same thing at the 2020 RNC. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> That's right. That's exactly the point I want to make. Beautifully put, Peter. Is like 1900, people's parents alive today were yeah. alive at this time. History mm-hmm. is now. And just because Republicans and the G 
GOP don't talk quite so explicitly as this. That's the same exact thing that's happening. Right. Right. And it's important to note that like bullshitty elections where conservatives are suppressing or outright disenfranchising their opposition, it's how they keep up this like faux legitimacy. But the way minoritarian rule like actually consistently maintains power is through violence. Yes. And so the longer conservatives are committed to this like minoritarian path, they're going to be invested in using political violence. And the longer it goes, the more invested they'll be. That's not five or 10 years down the road. It's here. There are like endless examples of like right wing paramilitary types getting a pass from cops for the violence they're enacting on protesters. The kid who murdered two people in Kenosha was able to leave the scene and leave the state. Right. Without being arrested. He had to like turn himself in in Illinois yeah. to get arrested. Yeah. That's a great point. And it's important to like recognize that whatever you think about like voter suppression, if it's not something that resonates with you, it's step yes. one. Right. Yes. This isn't right. like the end game here. It's the right. first step in a process of subjugating the majority of people in the country. I mean, we just spent like an hour telling you about decades long project to suppress the vote. Republicans, they're not doing this because they're idiots. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they know what they're doing and they're doing it because it's important. It's politically exactly. important. It's necessary. Right. It's necessary. Right. And I think people on the left need to see that as well, how yeah. important it is to expand and protect voting rights. Yeah. You know, I, like Eileen heavily left. I've never been a big fan of Joe Biden, to say the least. Um, <laughs> sure. Yeah. And the one thing I'll say is this. This is an interesting election in large part because if Joe Biden wins and the Supreme Court flips, which isn't a guarantee if Biden wins, but if the Supreme Court flips on voting rights, the conservative project in this country will be relegated to the margins to a degree that you have never seen in your lifetime. Uh, yeah. I'm not right. going to vote for him because I'm in New York and it doesn't fucking matter. And uh, <laughs> Peter! Um, oh, yeah. I'm sorry. Uh, I'll just take three hours on my Tuesday morning that I was otherwise going to be sleeping and go vote. God damn it, Peter. Y- yeah. <laughs> it took me 15 minutes last time I voted. <laughs> uh, okay. Next week is... City of Los Angeles v. Lyons case about whether the court can or will stop the LAPD from using chokeholds. You can guess where they ended up on that one. 5-4 is presented by Westwood One and Prologue Projects. This episode was produced by Katja Kumkova with editorial oversight by Leon Nafok and Andrew Parsons. Our artwork is by Teddy Blanks at Chips NY, and our theme song is by Spatial Relations. From the Westwood One Podcast Network.